Well, good morning again. Thanks for joining us if you're online. As Emily mentioned, we will be opening a new series that will go for, I don't know, I haven't figured it all out yet, four or five months anyway, maybe six, through the books of First and Second Samuel. Um, years ago, I was in a job search that would bring me here, and I had been sending out resumes. Uh, we, church in Arizona, we just decided this isn't a great fit, and so we agreed. Uh, we prayed about it, and there was no rumors. We just came out, everybody knew. And I'm sending out resumes, resumes, and nothing is happening. And my time is coming up. I need to get a job. And a new job is posted online from Broomfield, Colorado. Uh, I spent 15 years on the front range, and so that would be kind of be like going home. Moreover, um, they, they described the pastor, especially the preaching style. I read it to my wife, Hope, and she said, Andy, they're describing you. On top of that, a student I worked with at the University of Northern Colorado had graduated, and he was a part of the leadership. I thought... This is a done deal. So I sent my letter encouraging them to consider me, and I sent a preaching tape. This is before the internet was big. And two weeks later, I got a form letter saying, thank you for your application, but God is leading us to other candidates. See you later. And I, I just felt like, ah, oh, does anybody want me? I had been sending out, and I thought, this was it. Felt rejected. Felt insignificant. Where do we go? Life, life has a way of dealing that to us, doesn't it? Where we feel like no one wants us, we're disconnected. Where do we go when we feel that way? Well, I want to talk about that this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to 1 Samuel chapter 1, we're going to go all the way through this chapter wrestling with the question, where can we go when we feel rejected and insignificant? Where do we go? Where can we go when we feel rejected and insignificant? Now, First and Second Samuel is one literary unit. It's really a collection of authors, um, but it's anonymous. Nobody knows exactly who wrote it. Um, it is a compilation of the history of Israel, but it's not comprehensive. It talks about Israel's relationship to God. It, it's, it's targeted. So that those of us, 2,500 3,000 years later, can learn from these people's relationship with God. Um, there's three central characters in here. Uh, we'll meet the first one today, Samuel, a prophet. Um, Samuel will lead Israel in a transition from a, a loose federation of states led by what is known as judges to a nation under a monarchy, a king. Samuel will be the prophet that walks him through this transition. And He'll be the first central character. The second one will be Saul. He will be the first king, and he won't do so well. And then the third central character will be David. He will be um, the king that is God after God's own heart. And so with that backdrop, let me jump in. In verse 1, we start in obscurity. Verse 1 says, Now there was a certain man from Ramathium, Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Joram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. So we meet this guy, Elkanah. We don't know much about him. In Chronicles, we find out that he's from a, the tribe of Levi, which means he's from a priestly family. But we're not even given that here. He's, he's kind of a no-name. Well, why start that way? Well, we're going to find out that the first principal character, Samuel, comes from this family. And he comes from obscurity. And it reminds us that God can raise up anybody from any place to serve his purposes. Verse 2, we're talking about Elkanah. He had two wives. Whoa, 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 whoa there, pastor. 
Isn't the Bible about one husband and one wife? They're not into polygamy. That's nowhere in there. So, so why do we have this? Well, narrative often shows it doesn't tell. It's not explicit. It's, uh, it's written other places that one man and one woman in marriage. Uh, so it's written, but, but this shows the folly of multiple spouses. Uh, we'll come back and talk about Elkanah in just a minute. Uh, but, as I said, there's three central characters. Um, Samuel, who we're about to meet, Saul, the first king, and David. And he's kind of the, the prototype of the king. He was the man after God's own heart. But David never brings this area of monogamy under control. And he has multiple wives. He has six or seven. And on top of that, he has concubines, women with whom he is intimate, but he's not married to them. So David's pretty busy. He's got a lot going on. And, and we're going to get why is the idea of, of the king having multiple wives not a good one. When David dies, there's a succession, and it's the oldest son. And the oldest son of which wife? Well, that, that sets off the problem. But, but there's a bigger issue. David's used to taking for everyone. He, whoever he wants, he's the most powerful guy. Well, Israel's out to battle. He should be out to battle. Uh, Uriah the Hittite is a leader, out, and he's out there. And, and uh, uh, his wife... Bathsheba stays back and David sees her bathing and thinks, I want her. And man, he's been taking everyone he wants. So he takes her, he's intimate with her. They conceive a child together. He tries to get Uriah to come back to sleep with his wife to cover his tracks. Uriah's such a principled guy. I think if my soldiers aren't sleeping with my wife, I'm not sleeping with my wife. So David's got a problem. He's about to be exposed. So he sends orders back to have Uriah murdered. The troops withdraw, Uriah's killed. God sends his prophet Nathan to confront David, and, and David repents. But uh, the consequences, there's always a cost-benefit. The, the Proverbs talk about that the, there's an allure of an illicit relationship. Well, there, there's, a, there's an excitement to that, but, but, but the cost, and we'll talk about that when we get into First and Second Samuel, far outweighs the benefit. The pleasure, pain, way out of balance. So First Samuel is showing us that polygamy is a bad idea. If you're married, be faithful to your spouse. Don't go looking. Be true to that spouse. Beyond that, 1 Samuel is showing us, 2 Samuel is showing us that we ought not to put our ultimate trust in a human being. David is as good as it gets, and he's immoral. We've entitled this series Reliant. We're looking for people who are reliant upon God. In some ways, David is, and we'll see that. In other ways, he's not. Later, Saul will be chasing him around because he's jealous. David's been anointed king, and, and, and David will say, I'm going to die at the hand of Saul, and he goes to live with the Philistines. A bad decision. Much later in David's kingship, he'll take a census because he thinks, I just need to know how strong my army is to know how secure I am. And God says, that's not a statement of reliance on me. That's a statement of reliance on yourself and your army, and Israel will suffer for that. What's my point? We need not put our ultimate hope in a person, in people. Why do I say that? This is July. We've got August, September, October, November. We've got elections coming up. And I get it. You're going to go to the polls and you're going to vote on the candidate you think most represents biblical values. That's fine. That's okay. But please do not put your ultimate hope in a politician. They will fail. Which part are you talking about? Yes. Yes. And lest we pick on politicians, don't put your ultimate hope in a pastor either. They will fail. 
I could bring my wife and my kids up here and they could tell you stuff that would make the neck and the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And you think, whoa, I'm gonna, I better go to the honey. We better go find another church. And that's okay, but that pastor's got his own issues too. So don't put your ultimate hope in a pastor. Don't put it in your spouse. Don't put it in your friend. Don't put it in the church. Put where? In God. David, Samuel, and Saul are central characters, but they're not the hero. God is the hero. God is the one where we need to put our ultimate hope. And we need to be relying on him. We need to take him at his word. Well, Elkanah's not doing that. He's taking two wives. Well, why is that? Second part of verse 2. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. That's probably why he took the second wife. At this time, children were critical. Israel was an agrarian culture, an agriculture. You needed people to do the work. They didn't have technology. They didn't have machines. Second, your kids were your 401k. No 401ks there. They're going to take care of you in retirement when you die. Third, as a nation, Israel needs people to move their mission forward. Women were valued to the degree that they could conceive children. Women that couldn't conceive children were considered useless. In the Bible, barrenness is often a metaphor for hopelessness. This is the issue of the family, and apparently Elkanah decides he needs to take things into his own hand, and so this is the family he's got. Let's see how it goes, starting in verse 3. Now, this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of the host in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, who was the priest, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. Hold on to those names. We'll talk about those people in two weeks. When the day came that Elkanah Kana sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Let me stop there. God had closed her womb. So, Pastor, why? What did they teach you? Did they answer that question for you at seminary? So here's my answer. I don't know. There is stuff that happens in life that is inexplicable. And God calls us to trust him in the pain of of that. But Hannah's uh, problem is compounded by this other wife. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Why on earth would you provoke somebody who was in pain. I have no idea. Jealousy? She was loved more? She got more food? That's why, remember we're going to show, not tell, that's why polygamy is a bad idea. That's why faithfulness in marriage is a good idea. So now Elkanah is going to try and uh, solve this issue. So I want everybody to listen, but Ladies, particularly, I want you to listen. See how he does. He's going to try and comfort his wife in here. See, see what you think of his, his strategies. You ready for this? Here we go. Verse 8. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? Why is your heart set? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So what he's saying is, hey, honey, I realize you're sad, but, man, I'm giving you a truckload to eat. And, hey, being married to me, doesn't that, doesn't that make up? For not having children? Just, could I get a poll here of women? How's, how's that approach? What do you think? 
Not a good one. My wife's saying not a good one. She's shaking her head. Not a good one. What's the root issue here? His heart is right. He wants to resolve her pain. But you know what? There's stuff in life we can't resolve. And we can't say this to make it go away. The best thing we can do is to come alongside them, love them, hug them, say I'm praying for you, and I'm grieving with you. We make these trite comments, oh, God's in control. That's true. But at the moment, that seems so empty. When I came out of college, I worked 15 years in a campus ministry, and then I transitioned to a pastor. And, and the first church I really pastored was down in Arizona. It was an older church. Well, we didn't have a lot of, when you're ministering among 18 to 22-year-olds, not a lot of suffering there, okay? But I get to this church, and it's kind of like, there's a lot going on. It's an older congregation. And I learned, there ain't a whole lot to say but to love people. So there's this lady, Francie, one of my favorites. And this is my first uh, interaction with a fibromyalgia, an autoimmune. She would get it, and it would put her in the hospital for a week or two. Every four to six months, Francie's in the hospital. Okay, I'll go see her. Well, in this case, one of the, and of course, people in the church would go, and uh, they would say, uh, Francie, is there anything I can do? She said, yeah. Yeah, you know, could you go check on Buck? That's her husband. He hasn't come and visited me this morning, and that's not typical. Well, somebody goes to check on Buck, and what do you think's happened? Buck has had a heart attack and died. So here she is laid out in the hospital. Gotta say, hey, I'm so sorry. But your husband passed away. Then we're planning the funeral, and, and again, she, when she does these long, when she goes, she would go in. And I came to her and said, Francie, you're going to have to make a decision. Either you're going to need to embalm Buck, or we're going to have to do the funeral without you because the doctor's not letting you out. She began to weep. We don't have money to do that, and we're not going to spend our money that way. We'll tape the funeral, and we'll let you see it. You know, I, I planned the funeral out, but she wouldn't be there for her husband's funeral. What do you say? That stuff happens. What do you say? hurt for you. I love you. I'm praying for you. Well, Hannah's dealing with some issues. She's dealing with infertility, and she's being taunted by the other wife. But in verse 9, Hannah makes a definite decision. It says, then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. That, it's, that word is, uh, it made a definite decision. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Well, what decision does Hannah make? Here's what decision she makes, verse 10. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me. I want to stop there. What she's counting on is the character and nature of God. God bleeds for the marginalized. God hurts for the hurting. God tells his people, care for the widow and the orphan. She's betting that God's going to remember that God's there. Here's my question. The day is coming where you're going to get bad news. The cancer's not 
getting better. The relationship's not healed. The child continues to rebel. The job search is, is failing. What's your hope? Do you believe God's good? Or are you tying that goodness if I get a certain result? Hannah's saying, remember me. God, remember me. Whether I have a child or not, remember me. Second thing. And not forget your maidservant. But will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. That's a razor on his head. That's a vow. He's going to be given as a priest to serve the Lord. Hannah is saying, I'm going to give up the benefits of a son. Remember the do the work on the farm and be the 401k and then and, and be the help is no, no, he's going to serve in the temple. If you give me a son, I, I will turn him over to you. Why on earth would you do that? I'm reliant on the Lord. I'm not ultimately counting on a child. I'm reliant on the Lord to meet my deepest needs. See, we're asking this question, where can we go when we feel rejected and insignificant? The Lord promises to meet our need for significance and connection. The Lord promises to meet our need for significance and connection. You know, one of my responsibilities as a pastor is I officiate funerals. Funerals are always sad. Some are harder than others. Here's the hardest one I ever had. A couple was 12 hours out from giving birth, and something went terribly wrong. And they gave birth to a fully formed but deceased child. So I was in the hospital room with them as they were holding on to this fully formed child who's deceased. And we're taking pictures and we're doing this. And I, I did the funeral. And I remember we closed the casket. I mean, the mom wailed, wailed. Later, when I was talking with the husband, I said, look, if you don't want me to talk, tell me to stop and I will because I have no idea. I have no idea what you're feeling. I said to him, the reason I cried during that funeral, I imagined it was one of my kids in that casket. But I said, here's what I think. Either there is a God who is sovereign in this, who you don't understand, but you believe is good and will redeem this. That, that's one possibility. And you're going to have to trust him to meet that need. When, when, you, when you see little boys his age, which you will, and you remember, what if... You're going to have to trust God is there for you. Or you, in your anger, you, you can blow off God. You can say, I'm done with God. If that's the case, then your son is just a statistic. 999 out of 1,000 births at St. E's are good. And dude, I'm sorry, you drew the short straw. I, I understand. I would want to reject God too. This is so painful. This has hurt so much. But if there's no God, then your son is simply a statistic. I got to believe there's more in life. As far as I know, these, this couple is still in church. They've had other children. But I see him every now and again. It's a hurtful thing. But they believe God is gracious to them. Well, Hannah's in the midst of that. She has not had her prayer answered. 
Verse 12, now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. Hannah will answer that in just a minute. But does that tell you the, the spiritual perception of Eli? This woman is pouring out her heart. And he thinks he's drunk. Will it be any surprise that Eli and his sons don't last? But Hannah replied, verse 15, No, my Lord, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman. That same word, worthless, will be used to describe Eli's son in, sons in chapter 2. For I have spoken now, until now, out of my great concern and provocation. Verse 17, then Eli answered, said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you might have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. She's no longer sad. Because she's got a child, right? No, it's not what the passage says. No promise of a child. No child here. The Lord is her provision. Child or no child, God can bring her joy in life. She is a woman reliant. There's our word, reliant on the Lord. So again, I need to ask you, when... Your dreams don't come to fruition. When the healing doesn't happen, when the child doesn't happen, when, it, when what's your response? What are you counting on to bring you joy, significance, and connection in life? You know, most of you know our story. We had our own brush with infertility, our first pregnancy. We were older when we got married. First pregnancy, I mean, we tell the world we're missionaries in Latin America. We come home for just a transition, and we find out that's, that's a, it's a miscarriage. And the doctor said, get busy if you want to have children. Well, we were down in Chile. Next pregnancy, I'm guarded, but um, that's our first son, Chris. I remember they turned on the ultrasound, and I just wept. I just thought, okay, I'll, I'll give any. I'll risk anything. Well, then once we had our first child, we wanted a second child, and again, we had two more miscarriages. And, oh. And really, it was our last shot. It's kind of like, you want to check for the heartbeat? I'm sure, okay. And then we heard Hope's heartbeat. Then we heard the little boys. And that's our son, Drew, who's back on the sound right now. And I melted. But I remember those days, if the Lord doesn't give us what we want, are we good? Are we defining his goodness by a desired outcome? The Lord is good, period. That is our hope. So what happens? Then they arose early. I'm in verse 19 in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah's wife. And the Lord remembered her. Okay, she closed her womb and opens it here. Why? I don't know. Come on, pastor. What did they teach you at seminary? I don't know much. That's what they taught me at seminary. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived a son that she gave, had conceived that she gave birth to a son, James Samuel, saying, because I've asked him of the Lord. So, she's got her son. She's promised she dedicated the Lord, but man, she's been a long time without a son. Is she going to keep him for herself? Well, let's find out, verses 21 to 28. Then the man Elkanah went up with all the household to offer to the Lord 
the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she was, said to her husband, I will not go until the child is weaned, then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him, only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. There they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. Eli's the priest. And said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of you. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. She's going to leave her son in the temple to minister alongside Eli. And Eli, God will raise up Samuel. But she's given up all the benefits. Remember, agricultural thing and 401k and for the nation. He's strong. Why, why would you do that? Because you're reliant on God. You believe that he is faithful. Let me jump ahead and tell you what happens in Hannah's life. This is 1 Samuel 2, starting in verse 18. Now Samuel was ministering with the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. And his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you ch- children from this woman in place of the one she has dedicated to the Lord. So they're asking for more children. No promise. And they went to their home. The Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Now I want to be careful that we don't get transactional with God. I give one and I get five. No. But I want to say God is faithful. God will meet our need for connection and significance. Why does this need to be shouted? Because with the advent of social media, the message is, go out there and get it. You see pictures of the people's vacation. You see pictures of their kids in their baseball uniforms. You see pictures of people's new car, of their promotion, of their house, of their no, no, no. And the message is, you want significance and you want connection, go get it. And we chase something that was never intended to meet our deepest needs. God said, I will meet your ultimate need for significance and connection. And as we think about that, I want you to think about Jesus in terms of connection and significance. He was the eternal son of God. He lowered himself to take on human flesh. But then in a mockery of a trial, he was found guilty like a common criminal. He was spit on, beat on, hung naked on a cross. You talk about going from significant to insignificant. He did that so we could be connected to God. Talk about connection. Jesus' first words on the cross were, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why is that? 2 Corinthians 5 says, he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin in our place. God, a holy God, couldn't look on sin. Jesus experienced separation. Jesus experienced insignificance so you wouldn't have to. He is the reason we can be talking about. And he wants to connect us to the love that the Father, Son, and Spirit have been experiencing from eternity past. He wants to bring us in. That's what he prayed in John 14, that they would know the love that we've shared. And he wants to connect us to his body. 
That's why Johnny Howard shared what he did two weeks ago about places to connect. God's desire is that you connect with other human beings as well as with him. Jesus calls us to connection and calls us to significance, not found out there, but in reliance on him. So I'm wondering, out in our crowd here, do we have uh, any Madonna? Remember the singer Madonna? Any Madonna fans here? Okay, we got Lois Sandiford. She put her hand up. Big Madonna fan back there. <laughs> and Sydney Lau, okay. Elena, big, big Madonna. Well, here's, here's why I'm asking this question. So a few weeks ago, I was downstairs by the office of our kids' ministry director, Lindsay Harms. And I have worked with Lindsay for years, and I hear all this Madonna music coming out. And it turns out she's a, she's a Madonna groupie. So the next time you see Lindsay, you need to ask her about her favorite Madonna song. Well, in the course of the conversation, Lindsay shares this information with me about Madonna. Here we go. You ready for this? Madonna's net worth is estimated between 590 million to 800 million. She has sold over 300 million records worldwide. The Guinness World Records acknowledged her as the best-selling female music artist of all time. I think that's why Lois listens to her. <laughs> According to the Recording Industry of America, she's the best-selling female rock artist of the 20th century and the third highest certified female artist in the United States with 64.5 certified album units. Madonna had generated over $1.5 billion from ticket sales of her concert tours throughout her career. According to Billboard Box Score, she is the highest grossing solo artist of all time, grossing over $1.31 billion between 1990 and 2016, behind only the Rolling Stones and U2. Well, why do I share that about Madonna? J.D. Greer's a, a pastor, and, and he shared this quote. Now, keep in mind all those accomplishments, shared this quote from Madonna in Vanity Fair. Here's what she says. All of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. Really? 1.5 billion in ticket sales? Greatest female selling artist of all time? You, you've got feelings of inadequacy? Apparently. I'm always struggling with that fear. My drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably will never end. What's my point? Connection and significance, it ain't out there. If Madonna, with all her success and all her thing, it says, I'm still dealing with inadequacy, we're chasing the wind when we go looking for it out there in a car and a whatever relationship and the success look at look at my club look at we're playing a fool's game the creator says i want to give you significance i want to give you connection will you first come to me and then as i meet those needs you're free to enjoy those other things without having to depend on those other things where can we go when we feel rejected and insignificant, the Lord is where we can go. He promises to meet our need for significance and connection. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we're grateful that uh, you make this promise and you are good for your word. Thank you for the example of Hannah who was being taunted, was considered useless, 
And she stood up and made a decision to seek you. Lord, that we would learn, that we would grow from that, and we would understand that Jesus suffered insignificance and suffered separation so we wouldn't have to. I pray, Lord, that we'd grow through these examples. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.